0: Dr. Bruce Oz Benson, and this is On Becoming. I'm hoping that you're enjoying listening to the podcast. I certainly enjoy making it. If you're finding the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or PayPal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. As always, I invite you to get in touch about the podcast if you have any comments questions, or suggestions. And don't forget that you can hear the audio version of this podcast wherever you get your audio podcasts, and the video version on YouTube. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you may remember that this past weekend was Theology Beer Camp, which was held this year in the beautiful metropolis of Springfield, Missouri. By the way, since I was in the States, I decided that I should visit family and friends, so I'm having a short holiday at the moment, which explains why I'm dressed a little bit more casually. The weather for the event was perfect. There were no clouds in the sky over Springfield during camp, and it was very pleasantly warm. The conference was held at the Venues, a church in Springfield that, so I'm told, was designed to be a haven for people who've been hurt by other churches or religious spaces. There are various kinds of speakers at the conference. Pete Annes, a Bible scholar who got in trouble at Westminster Theological Seminary for saying things about the Bible that are true, but nobody wanted them to be said, he spoke on the subject of deconstruction and the Bible. Alas, he was supposed to be giving a talk with John Dominic Crossan, but Crossan ended up somewhere in Texas and didn't make it to the conference until later. You may recognize the name Crossan. He's a member of the Jesus Seminar, which has tasked itself with figuring out which things in the Gospels that Jesus actually said and which are merely attributed to him. I'm somewhat skeptical about such a project, since I'm not convinced that separating what Jesus said from what can be attributed to him can really be done. But I should point out that I'm not a New Testament scholar, so I'm not formally qualified to make a judgment either way. After that session, I joined Christy Whaley to talk about deconstruction. My own talk was a kind of genealogy of the term deconstruction. Those of you who've listened to the podcast for a while know that I've studied the philosophers Husserl and Heidegger. I was an editorial assistant at the Husserl archives and did my doctorate with perhaps the premier Husserl scholar. I provided the basic background behind the development of the concept of deconstruction and then considered how the concept functions in Derrida's thought. One of the points I made was that Derrida considers himself to be a very conservative person. I then proceeded to ask what the word conservative means. My worry is that those of us who'd be probably more comfortable calling ourselves progressives should be careful about allowing others to claim the label conservative. For instance, the people being called conservatives who are Republican members of Congress should, as far as I can see, be called something like radicals. The idea that the MAGA representatives represent something conservative is, I think, laughable. Their goal is to tear things down, so I don't see how that can count as conservative. There were other topics being discussed that morning, such as the concept of spirituality, how to read pop culture, art as contemplative practice, and suffering. That afternoon there was a talk by Ruben Rosario Rodriguez on what happens to God after deconstruction. In effect, the question is how we are to conceive of God at this point in time. In his latest book, he argues that the apologetics in which evangelicals often engage, which are designed to lead people to the faith by logical arguments, so think you know somebody like William Lane Craig, if you're wondering who I'm talking about, he basically argues that these strategies are ineffective for the nuns, in other words, those who are unable to check any box under the rubric religion. I will be doing at least an episode on this topic, and likely a short series. The next day began with a session on ethics and the good life after deconstruction, which was led by Reggie Williams and my good friend Aaron Simmons. You might think that deconstruction could lead to someone saying that there is no such thing as the good life. But the reality is that Derrida was passionate about living a good life, and was also worried that religious dogmatism can become a justification for violence. Then there were sessions on the historical Jesus, religious pluralism, and other topics. I was pleased to see that Jörg Rieger was addressing capitalism. Jörg was a contributor to the volume I co-edited with my friend Peter Heltzel, titled Evangelicals and Empire, in which we asked contributors to comment on whether American evangelicals were in the process of upholding empire, or whether they were in the process of subverting empire. As you can imagine, such a question can be answered in multiple ways. By the way, the book was written during the time George W. Bush was President of the United States and was published in 2008. The conference was a great time to get to know people. I mentioned the church that hosted us was partly founded to provide an alternative for those of us who've been hurt or abused by our faith communities. But that also fit the dynamics of the conference, since many people I talked to had been harmed in one way or the other. I didn't sense any dynamic along the lines of, we're better than those poor saps who are still evangelicals. But it was clear that these were people from whom evangelicalism had become problematic. Just as an aside, I was part of a group of folks at a different conference, and over time it emerged that virtually all of them had once been part of evangelicalism, but now define themselves very differently. The difficulty, of course, in dropping out of evangelicalism is that one loses one's community. I have the distinct sense that Beer Camp was designed as an alternative space for those who no longer have a place where they fit. I had a long and frank conversation with someone I'll not name. He's someone who's been involved in deconstructing evangelicalism and has truly paid a price for it. There are few groups of people who treat their own so poorly. That perhaps this point might help illuminate evangelical support for Trump, They are used to people, specifically leaders, who abuse them. One of the sad things about the evangelical world that is the case is that it's almost immune to critique. Claims of abuse of various sorts are minimized, or else simply denied. Moreover, when evangelicals are criticized in any way, they tend to view the criticism as a vindication of their own faithfulness. So while you would think that thoughtful criticism might result in some self-examination, it usually just reinforces the evangelical sense of righteousness. Of course, the difficulty here is that Paul argues that persecution should be seen as a source of joy, which makes it easy to tune out anyone who might be critical. All in all, Bierkamp was a great experience. I so enjoyed meeting other people who had gone through difficult things while being part of the evangelical world. The reason for that is that it reminds me that I'm not alone. When the evangelical world shuts the door on you, it can feel like you're the only one, that there aren't any other people you can reach out to. And Bierkamp provided the forum for people like me. One last thing. In the wake of my talk, I had been discussing the status of objectivity. My own view is that ultimately the very concept of objectivity is incoherent. Yet someone provided an example of a fork as something we could all have an objective view about. I pointed out that the fork is a human-made object, and thus is dependent upon the concept of fork, a concept that we have created. Can we all agree that this particular thing counts as a fork? I think we can, and I can't think of any reason why someone would argue otherwise. But that doesn't make the concept of fork objective. Instead, it makes the concept of fork a socially constructed idea, one that almost everyone can agree on in such a way so that we can identify a fork as not being a spoon or a knife. Put another way, we don't actually need objectivity if there's enough intersubjective agreement. We always know the world as subjects because that's who we are. Of course, our subjectivity can be shared by others in such a way that practically it's as if there were objectivity. But now back to Nietzsche, who provides, I think, a way of rethinking Christianity and probably would have been very much at home at beer camp. As we've seen in the episodes on Nietzsche's prayers and tears, there's every reason to think that Nietzsche was once a devout and true Christian believer. Even after having supposedly left Christianity behind, we saw that he was still connected to it in important ways. If you heard the episode titled, You May Be More Christian Than You Think, you realize that even those who do not think of themselves as Christians, are still deeply influenced by Christian ideas. But otherwise, if you were raised in the West, you were raised with many Christian assumptions. Nietzsche had a father and grandfather who were Lutheran ministers, and being raised in a Christian home, Christian belief would have come to him quite naturally. Yet, by the time he was 18, he no longer had any faith left. We've examined that in previous episodes. So, of course, the question can be asked, what happened? We've considered the way in which Nietzsche moves from Lutheran pietism to Dionysian pietism. Yet we have not considered what it means to say that God is dead. Given Nietzsche's later attitude toward Christianity, one might expect that some traumatic event was responsible for his loss of faith. But that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Moreover, although one might be tempted to speculate that Nietzsche's agnosticism constituted a rebellion against an overly strict upbringing, there is again no evidence to that effect. When Nietzsche finally told his mother about his turn from faith, his demeanor seems to have been one of reluctance rather than one of rebellion. His explanation to her was that he now thought Christianity to be simply superstition. Much later in life, he described the change as a skepticism that first appeared so early in my life, so spontaneously, so irrepressibly, so much in contradiction to my environment, age, models, origins. In his last text, Nietzsche claimed that his aversion to Christianity came about from instinct. As I've said, I think that interpretation of himself is open to question. But what exactly was Nietzsche skeptical about? While we shall venture an answer to that question, it seems to me that the answer is far from clear. Jürg Salakwarda notes that, and now I'm quoting from him, Nietzsche was familiar above all with two types of religious faith. On the one hand, the practical faith of his mother, which lacked theological reflection and sophistication entirely, and on the other hand, the more rationalistic tradition of his aunt Rosalie, who was the dominating theological figure in the family after the death of his father. One might argue that Nietzsche's mother was the dominant influence on his faith in his early years. Certainly the kind of piety we noted seems more reflective of her faith than that of Rosalie's rationalistic faith, which today we probably term something like classic liberal theology. But as Nietzsche's thought matured, it's understandable that Rosalie's influence became more prominent. Much of Nietzsche's adult criticism of Christianity is probably most accurately read as against the rationalistic strand of Christianity, in which Christianity is reduced to something purely rational, a movement to which we will turn shortly. Put bluntly, while Nietzsche, as an adult, could not take his mother's more pietistic sort of faith seriously, he is reluctant to criticize it. Conversely, while he takes the rationalistic expression of Christianity seriously, he finds that it rings hollow. In effect, Nietzsche applies his tuning hammer to this particular brand of Christianity and finds it to be simply an idol. By the way, this idea of the tuning hammer comes from Twilight of the Idols, which I often recommend as the best place to start if you'd like to read Nietzsche. In the foreword to that text, Nietzsche writes, Another way to recover, which, under circumstances, I would like even better, is sounding out idols. There are more idols than realities in the world. To pose questions here with a hammer for once, and maybe to hear and apply that well-known hollow sound which tells of bloated innards. How delightful for one who has ears even behind his ears. Nietzsche believed that the concept of the Christian God was an idol, though it's clear from this passage that he believes that there are many idols, such as Plato's forms and various other entities in which people have believed. It's important to recognize that Nietzsche's use of the term idol denotes anything that is idolized or taken to be true that in reality is simply false. Despite the fact that Nietzsche's skepticism was a personal phenomenon, it clearly reflects the culture of his time. Whereas belief in God was once a dominant part of European culture, it was on the wane in Nietzsche's day. Thus, Nietzsche's loss of faith seems to be the result of a realization that educated people of his day were finding religious belief decreasingly acceptable. His own move from devout faith to disbelief then parallels what he sees as a wider cultural shift. Note that the so-called death of God is proclaimed as a cultural phenomenon, haven't you heard of that madman who, in the bright morning, lit a lantern and ran to the market marketplace, crying incessantly, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God? Since many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he caused great laughter. Has he been lost then? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Where is God? He cried. I'll tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers. The madman, who can be reasonably interpreted as Nietzsche, considers himself accomplice to the crime, but not as its architect or sole executor. The role of the madman is instead a prophetic figure. He proclaims what has taken place and predicts what is to come. God's death places us in an Infinite nothing, says Nietzsche, in which there is nothing but, again, quoting Nietzsche, empty space. Interestingly enough, his hearers are described as those who do not believe in God. While there may have been others who would not have already known the news, the people in the public square certainly did. Indeed, they were comfortable enough with the news to heckle the messenger. Yet later in that same passage, they are depicted as responding with astonishment. Why so? One way of explaining the reaction is that, while they already knew, they're surprised to hear anybody actually say it aloud and in public. Such was the sort of thing at which one winked. So it is appropriate that a social outcast would be the one bold enough to say what many people thought but were uncomfortable saying. It is likewise appropriate for a madman to see that to which some people were blind. As far back as the medieval period, it was thought that the insane had a special ability to discern what others might miss. Who were these people in the know? Certainly that group would have included radical thinkers of Nietzsche's day. Nietzsche was not the first to write of the death of God. During his time as a university student, Nietzsche undoubtedly read and was deeply influenced by Max Stirner. Nearly 30 years before Nietzsche's own proclamation, Stirner had written that Man has killed God in order to become now, sole, God on high. The parallel between this passage and the one above are striking. But many unbelievers were likewise to be found within the church. Such people attended church and made pretensions to belief. After all, in Nietzsche's day, these were culturally expected behaviors. Whether even Nietzsche's father, the Lutheran minister, was much of a believer is hard to say. R.J. Hollingdale may go too far in commenting that Nietzsche's father strikes one as about as devout and otherworldly as Lawrence Stern. But there's no indication that Nietzsche's father had been a paragon of piety. Soren Kierkegaard's complaints about the sickly state of the Lutheran Church in Denmark are well known. But the German Lutheran Church was no better. Both had degenerated into being bodies more important for conferring social status than promoting genuine faith. Indeed, the faith of many members had little to do with what committed Christians would consider to be real. Christian belief in Germany in Nietzsche's day was clearly under attack. Although there were many factors at work, three important ones should be mentioned. First, exactly a half century before Nietzsche's birth, Immanuel Kant publishes his Reason Within the Bounds of Religion Alone. There he argued that religion, specifically Christianity, needed to be reconfigured to meet the demands of reason. Anything not acceptable to modern science needed to be scrapped. One result of this rationalistic house cleaning is that anything miraculous was no longer to be taken seriously. In effect, Kant gives us a philosophical version of the Jefferson Bible. But far more importantly, the basic categories of Christianity are subverted. Kant exchanges original sin and Christ's incarnation for respectively, the evil principle and the good principle. Being religious involves following the commands of the legislator of all duties, that's how Kant puts it. God becomes nothing more than a moral commander, and Christianity is reduced to a particularly exemplary moral system. There is still a need for God in such a system, but only as a kind of ground for moral responsibility. In turn, Christ's place in Christianity is as a moral example. A second and even more serious blow to Christianity published in 1841, in which he argues that the concept of God, specifically the God of Christianity, is the product of human invention. What Christians call God is simply a projected composite of their own characteristics taken to the highest level of perfection. Thus for, by contrast, and here I'm quoting, the true or anthropological essence of religion, with, quote, the false or theological essence of religion. Whereas Christians think that their religion is based on the latter, Forbach argues that it's actually based on the former. Religion arises from a desire of human beings to elevate themselves above other animals, to project a kind of vision of what they could become. Now I'm quoting from Forbach: Man, this is the mystery of religion projects his being into objectivity, and then again makes himself an object to this projective image of himself, thus converted into a subject. Thus man, while he is apparently humiliated to the lowest degree, is in truth exalted to the highest. Man has no other aim than himself. So religion ends up being like truth for Nietzsche, a way in which human beings exalt themselves. Like Nietzsche, Forabach thinks that he's merely pointing out what is actually the case. While the idea that God is merely the result of projection has become the almost unquestioned orthodoxy among many people, one must not forget how startling Forabach's thesis would have seemed in Nietzsche's day. I could definitely say that when I would explain Forabach to my intro students at Wheaton, you could just see the discomfort One of the difficulties of Forbach's point is that it's very hard to argue against. Of course, it's likewise hard to provide definitive evidence in favor of such a view. Thus, in the end, the fate of Forbach's thesis depends on whether one finds it more plausible than the view it's intended to replace. As we've seen in other episodes, belief in God, or gods, has been part of being human for many thousands of years. Of course, today we recognize that not all religions are theistic, which means that one can't simply say that belief in God is equivalent to religion. Given the reductionism of Kant and the atheism of Feuerbach, it's understandable why a further shift takes place. If Christ ends up being merely an example, and Christianity only a set of moral teachings, why do we really need either? In his Life of Jesus, uh, that dates to 1835, David Strauss argues that Christianity is not based on the historical Jesus but on the, as he puts it, the ideal Christ, our moral example. Later in his book The Old Faith and the New, from 1872, Strauss, who had read Forbach and been deeply influenced by him, takes the next logical step and rejects Christianity altogether, even though he wants to retain Christian morality. By the time in which Nietzsche is writing the 1870s and 1880s, Strauss's new faith had become popular among those who were educated even among many for whom church attendance was still a part of their routine. It is in this context that the madman makes this announcement. Yet how exactly does a god die? You might expect that Nietzsche would answer this question in a direct and simple way, but the reality is that he provides multiple accounts for how God dies. Consider this point made by Nietzsche. This is from a section titled At the Deathbed of Christianity. Really active people are now inwardly without Christianity, and the more moderate and reflective people of the intellectual middle class now possesses only an adapted, which is to say, a marvelously simplified Christianity. In short, resignation and modest demands elevated to Godhead. That is the best and most vital thing that still remains of Christianity. But one should notice that Christianity has thus crossed over into a gentle moralism. It's not so much God, freedom, and immortality that have remained as benevolence and decency of disposition. It is the euthanasia of Christianity. In this passage, Nietzsche's answer is that it's a happy death in which God slowly morphs from a genuine metaphysical entity into a gentle moralism. This is the way a God dies, not with a bang but a whimper, to quote T.S. Eliot. The change is so subtle that most people don't even notice. They say Christianity, but they no longer mean God, freedom, and immortality. They say God, but they mean resignation and modest demands. But they don't necessarily know that this is what they mean. The old language remains, but it is now eviscerated of its old meaning. Of course, language often morphs in precisely this way. Yet Nietzsche's account of the Gott demmel, the twilight of God, is more complex than either the account Nietzsche provides here or the accounts provided by many who read Nietzsche. That should come as no surprise, given that Zarathustra says when gods die, they always die several kinds of death. In what follows, then, we'll trace those various deaths and consider their relation to one another. The first one is murder by truth. It takes Nietzsche some years after abandoning the Christian faith before he begins to criticize it. From roughly the mid-1860s to the mid-1870s, Nietzsche made relatively few negative comments about Christianity, either in publication or in personal correspondence. In Homo, he notes that the birth of tragedy was characterized by a, as he puts it, profound, hostile silence about Christianity. The full frontal attack against Christianity, which most readers of Nietzsche are familiar, only comes out in his later philosophy. In contrast, his early criticism usually takes the form of observation and description of the state of Christianity in 19th century Germany. Bear in mind, of course, that Nietzsche's criticism of Christianity is very specific. As we noted in the previous episodes on his prayers and tears, Nietzsche believed that genuine Christianity, which he thinks of as a way of life, has always been possible and is still possible today. Thus, his attack on Christianity is best thought of as an attack on all the things that got added to Jesus' teachings. Nietzsche nowhere provides a sustained argument against belief in God or Christianity. The reason for that lack of argument is simple. Nietzsche thinks that it is no longer necessary to refute God's existence. Instead, one need merely explain how belief in God and other religious entities came into being and thus explain it away. Here's what he says. In former times, one sought to prove that there is no God. Today one indicates how a belief that there is a God could arise, and how this belief acquired its weight and importance. A counterproof that there is no God thereby becomes superfluous. When in former times one had refuted the proofs of the existence of God put forward, there always remained the doubt whether better proofs might not be adduced than those just refuted. In those days, atheists did not know how to make a clean sweep. Although Nietzsche does not use the term genealogy here, in effect that replaces refutation. By showing the distinctly human origins of belief in God, one shows that such belief is no longer plausible. So it is no longer incumbent upon those who do not believe to prove their point or refute arguments on behalf of God's existence. Instead, believers now put on the defensive to prove theirs. Changing the assumption of the burden of evidence makes non-belief the default mode, or as Nietzsche puts it, when on a Sunday morning we hear the bells ringing we ask ourselves, is it possible this is going on because a Jew crucified two thousand years ago who said he was the son of God? The proof of such an assertion is lacking. In the context of our age, the Christian religion is certainly a piece of antiquity, intruding out of distant ages past. Of course, Nietzsche could only make this move given the direction in which German intellectual life was heading. In a previous age, the burden of proof would have been on his side. Yet, given the remarkable changes that come about in Christian theology itself, Nietzsche thinks that Christianity has effectively undermined its own truth claims, the result is that it's no longer intellectually respectable to believe in God or Christianity. As he puts it, given the current state of knowledge, one can no longer have any association with Christianity without incurably dirtying one's intellectual conscience. Nietzsche's comments about the end of Christianity and human all to human, from which that quotation is taken, are remarkably dispassionate. As such, they sound like a clinical diagnosis. In contrast, the infamous passage in the Gay Science, in which the death of God is announced, is anything but dispassionate. There Nietzsche describes the madman, der Tolle Mensch, as entering the marketplace crying, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God. Yet the madman goes on to provide the answer to his own question. I tell you, we have killed him. You and I. We are all his murderers. But how did we do this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? Here it is clear that the death of God necessarily involves the death of the true world, that is, the entire horizon. But it is likewise clear that wiping away that horizon is something that could never happen overnight. It could only take place over a long period of time, and with a great number of conspirators it's interesting to compare this famous passage with one from the same text that is considerably less often cited. How to understand our cheerfulness. The greatest recent event that God is dead, that the belief in the Christian God has become unbelievable, is already starting to cast its first shadow over Europe. To those few at least whose eyes, or the suspicion in those eyes, is strong and subtle enough for the spectacle, some sun seems to have set. Although Nietzsche refers to the death of God as an event, indeed the greatest of recent events, it seems far more accurate to describe it as a lingering twilight, dämmerung. So the Goethe twilight of God, is much like the Gertzen dämmerung, the title of one of Nietzsche's last books, and a word play on the last opera Goethe dämmerung in Richard Wagner's Ring Cycle. It's not merely that it takes time for the shadow to cast itself over Europe and even longer to spread over the rest of the world, but also that it takes time for God to die. While Nietzsche seems to act as if God's death is now over and done, the dying is more like that of a patient whose feeding tube has been removed, slow, agonizing, and without certainty when the final breath will be taken. If you think about what's happened since Nietzsche proclaimed the death of God, you'll immediately see that such a death has been slow and not necessarily steady, since belief in God, or what people sometimes term a higher power, has not exactly gone away. Indeed, many of the nuns, those people who can't check any of the boxes regarding religion, likewise say that they still believe in a higher power. Of course, the death of God is not constituted by some actual mortal event. Nietzsche here clearly equates God is dead with the fact that, as he puts it, the belief in the Christian God has become unbelievable. But loss of faith, usually, even if not always, takes place over a long period of time. Rarely does it take place in a moment. Those who suddenly find themselves without belief in a religion, an ideology, a political party, or something else, can often point to a series of moments of disbelief in which belief slowly eroded. Such would seem as precisely what happens to Nietzsche, as we've seen his poems and prayers of his teens display precisely an eroding belief. But we'll have to end there. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be helpful in your own becoming, consider supporting it at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both of them is our email address, and that's OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. Or you can, of course, just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Alspenson, Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.